This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss Chapter 7 of Mario Miele's book, Homosexuality and Liberation. The essay that is contained in Chapter 7 is titled, Towards a Gay Communism. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Grant. Hey, Grant here. Emancipation. Lexi. Lexi of Emancipation, polymorphously perverse. Donald. Hey, it's Donald from Communist League of Tampa, leading the sexual revolution. And Rosa. Rosa here, expressing my sexual freedom by jerking off in a Target bathroom. All right. (laughs) To uh, tonight... This is as good a segue as any. We're talking about uh, Towards a Gay Communism by Mario Miele. So we were just talking before we started recording about this guy. I don't know that much about him. I actually knew zero about him when I read this. Basically, he emerged out of the Italian ultra-left in the 1970s and like the gay movement in Italy. Is that correct? Yes, he founded the Italian Revolutionary Homosexual United Front, better known by its acronym Fiori Come Out. And so, yeah, it was one of the big gay rights group in Italy. And this was also when you had, you know, a big women's movement going on in Italy. And the, you had the whole autonomous movement and fascist and Stalinist gunning each other down in the streets. So shit was going down around this time. Okay. Um, so do we have anything else to say about this guy in general, I guess apparently at one point he ate his own shit and some dog shit in public. Yeah, he was uh, in the cross-dressing and making a public spectacle of himself. Which is interesting that all that is to, all that is together. Like, it's it's part of this, I don't know, we'll get into the critique, but, you know, yeah, you know, cross-dressing, eating shit, it's all the same stuff. It's like, it's <laughs> very... <laughs> yeah, Did that, well, that happen in a John Waters he, film? Or the yes, it Yes, yeah, there's it, a John Waters film where they eat dog shit, and he he also ate dog shit in public as well. Which came so first, the Waters film or this? Or I think I'm pretty sure this. Okay. Pink, I think this was around the same time. Well, but when's Pink Flamingos? I think I think that's the one, right? Yeah, Pink yeah. Flamingos. Hold on, let me look that up. Pink bit of appropriating like, queer oh, culture. Shit, this 72, 72 Pink Flamingos. So, oh, so yeah, Miyagi was huh. just you know writing off uh, the coattails of um. Divine. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty big film. I mean, that you know, that 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 got international traction to a certain extent, didn't it? Is it possible they could have seen it? I, I suppose. Like, yeah. I, I don't even really know if that if that that really happened because you know I so, looked anyway. up on Wikipedia. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'll tell you what though, uh, Wikipedia is underrated. I mean, you know, it says I'm looking at the spot right now. It says citation needed, but at least it says that. <laughs> you know. yeah, this, yeah. Yeah. This this but, um, uh, communist theories ate poop citation needed. Well, I think like he is, um, he kind of is a reaction to this patriarchal workerism that defined the mainstream Italian left. You get with the, uh, the French Communist Party, for example. Like you just had this idea of like the good 
communist nuclear family that was promoted you kind of this um soft french nationalism this kind of uh, masculinist workerism i wasn't meant to be a good you know militant communist worker is very much understood in masculine terms i mean the italian communist party sorry i mean it was the same in both parties essentially they both had this kind of patriarchal workerism and is that kind so, of an outgrowth of stalinism or is that just kind of like general you know hyper masculine european latin culture i think it's both yeah yeah it's one of the both kind of continuously you, disappointing things about like see, the, the, the golden age of social democracy and stalinism this, yeah, yeah you see stalinists throw people in um labor you throw gays in labor camps like no matter where they take power yeah, so. it's it's um bourgeois decadence to be yeah and so he's he's really like being super transgressive against this mainstream idea of homosexuality i guess we can play yeah, Stalinists in a way in that, you know, immediately following the, the Russian Revolution, there was a brief, brief period of flourishing for sort of the gay community in, yeah. in Russia, but it was short-lived. Yeah, and it was, it was also incredibly super limited, too. Like, yeah, it definitely. was only decriminalized in, like, a few regions, in a few, yeah, like, provinces. Yeah, because you had other regions where they had and, extremely... And there was... Leadership. And there was no like hate crime legislation or anything like that. So basically, they were getting murdered, still getting mm. murdered. And there was there was also sort of a weird divide between like gays from different classes per se. Hmm. Uh, but that that's that's a whole different topic. Yeah, that read more on homosexuality in Russia would be fascinating. Yeah, it's but, definitely uh, a hole in my knowledge base. Not that we should fear holes. Anyway. Um... <laughs> yeah, let's get to the text. Uh, yeah. Towards Gay Communism, it's the last chapter of his book, um, Homosexuality and Liberation, which uh, I don't know who published it, actually. We just found it online, a PDF. Um, sweet, sweet PDF. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I first started reading it, like, let me just read this first sentence here. As we have seen, schizophrenia sheds light on the transsexual substratum of the psyche. <laughs> Our bodily being and becoming, the mind is a part of the body, and the body as a whole is far from completely monosexual. So when I read that first sentence, I just kind of was like, <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, here we go. The Lusians of grandeur. Here we go. Well, yeah, yeah, you've got to look at this in a, in a context where, you know, starting with anti-Oedipus, there's this metaphor of schizophrenia as used as an attack on the notion of a singular co continuous coherent essential self and i think that lays the foundation for a lot better things than sort of the metaphor that it starts out as the sort of creative nihilism about the idea of identity itself things like that but that that does come with sort of a you know and i, I think this is something i've felt I felt reading this whole text was that there were a lot of right conclusions that came with psychoanalytic baggage. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is what he creates as his theory of transsexuality. And so this isn't exactly commensurate with what we would think of as trans, but like basically for Mealy, he takes this kind of abuse of the word schizophrenia honestly that comes out of <laughs> that comes out of this anti -psych psychiatry but psychoanalytic kind of circle and he translates it into this notion of transsexuality where 
it's a sort of like underlying human being that isn't maybe essentially essenced and gendered one way or the other. And that, you know, being raised is like cauterizing one side of that or the other and kind of closing that off and traumatizing you in a specific shape. And I think, yeah, I think that's, I think there's some, that's interesting. That. I, I think, think there's yeah. quite a bit of truth to that. Yeah. There's because a lot of truth. To that. I think that your personality and your sexuality is extremely influenced by those early years of being raised by the patriarchal family and the yeah. need for the patriarchal family to reproduce itself creates the need for a father figure to enforce violent through gendered violence, often gendered norms. And so we're basically, you know, socialized into certain gendered norms. And so I can see how you can kind of make this idea where actually there's just kind of this neutral, there's, it's really just completely social, you know? Yes. I would say too, um, there's a, there's an excellent quote that, that, uh, comes out of this line of thought, and, and it's also related to this uh, 70s anti-Oedipus-inspired pushback against certain great psychoanalytic concepts from within psychoanalysis. Um, and so here he's talking about the Oedipus complex, and he says, far from murdering his father so as to espouse his mother, the son rather murders his own femininity so as to identify with the father. He is subsequently forced to blind himself by repressing into the shades of the unconscious the vision of the tragedy he was forced to perpetrate, sorry, so that the femininity he condemned to death will not revive. And in truth, I, I would say it's, it's a statement that so many, you can get, you can get some really heterosexual cisgender in their sort of self-concept men to express this um it's 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 something a lot of people can relate to i'm sure i'm for another glass of rosé yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean this this pamphlet is out there like it's it might be the craziest thing we've read so well, far but but that in particular is incredibly resonant like just as you know, the trans feminine experience, and and again, transsexuality for Mealy is really not the same as what we think of as trans politics or transsexual or transgender. Like for Mealy, it's more of like a, the underlying queerness going on, and not so much a uh, I don't know. Well, he basically stable says, identity. He kind really. of says that. Yeah. What I understand, it kind of says that trans is basically like a trip you go on, is how he describes it. And he says, so basically, like you go on the homosexual trip, and so you shed the homosexuality that's been repressed, and then you go on the cross-dressing trip, and you throw off that repression. And then you go on the trans trip, where you throw off that repression, and finally you become like what was fully repressed by like your, you know... Yeah. Based, what he suggests is basically that we're all gender fluid to a certain degree. Like every one of us in society basically forces that down. Oh yeah, there's a great quote on this too. He he's talking about, and I love the the term that's going to appear in parentheticals here. You'll know what it is. He goes, uh, "These reactionary homosexuals 
homo cops make out <laughs> that outrageous queens and transvestites ruin the gay scene and spoil the image of homosexuality. For our part, we outrageous queens see them as queens dressed up as straight men, unfortunate people who are forced to disguise themselves and act a role imposed by the system and who find ideological arguments to justify their position as contented slaves. So he's really just kind of saying we need to just throw off the shackles of all forms of sexual repression, which is anything that at all resembles the um, male-female binary. Because this binary simply is, it's really kind of one of the first theories of gender fluidity, it seems, because this is 1970s. You know, this is pretty ahead of its time. I mean, it does bring the, up the question of, you know, what would society look like beyond gender? Yeah. I mean, it's just... there's technically like a, a Jungian theory of like the inner female or whatever inner woman shit but that that doesn't really count so much well what is a union idea because i imagine that's probably like a reactionary understanding of it yeah i'm just somewhat vaguely familiar with the concept existing in Jung, but i i honestly need to read more so i mean like his whole thing is like there's mythical archetypes that are like deep rooted in our unconscious and so i imagine you'd probably say that there's like a a woman archetype that's like deeply rooted in our unconscious right so this is which the, i think is probably bullshit this like, is that this, sounds like nonsense well this is the anima anonymous he actually makes a reference to this and he dismissively talks about how you know when men like the the it's uh it's in a passage on objectification of women in the way that straight men see women as like this sort of abstract kind of freedom from loneliness and he uses the anima anonymous to talk about oh you complete me you know like without um without really seeing who the other person is and only kind of engaging with them in this particular way um right. i can't find it right now but he he uses the jungian terms and it's supposed to be a, i think that's supposed to be a critique of Jung and and an identification with of of Jung with uh like a reactionary uh straight sexuality let's see i i feel like we should talk about um this just broadly speaking the sort of left freudian tradition that goes through herbert marcuse where he sees like there's an almost i don't know manichaean battle between like the principle of love and the principle of like death and war and that's like the thesis of uh, eros and civilization and so this whole concept of like throwing off the chains of repression and being emancipated and opening Eros, that all that's coming from that side of the Frankfurt yeah, School. That's, that's and you, you can see it in Reich as well. Um, yeah. Well, from... it's, it, yeah, it's from, it really starts from Reich, but Marcuse takes it a step further, I think, and critiques Reich for basing it too much in the genitalia. And Marcuse kind of sees like the entire bodily existence as erotic, not just the genitalia. And so he accuses Reich of um, creating a tyranny of the genitalia. Whereas, so Marcuse kind of goes even beyond Reich and says, because Reich never really actually um, explored homosexuality very deeply. Yeah, I mean, he was just kind of homophobic, right? Was, yeah, he was. He just accepted the basic ideas like that gays shouldn't be persecuted, that they should have rights, but that it wasn't like a normal thing, that it was 
kind of you know like the way that transphobes think of trans people today it was like, it was seen as dis as psychological dysfunction to him. yeah like yeah. it was something if you were gay it was something wrong with you even if you know you you know all the marxists generally believe that you know gays should have had rights at least you know and i, I guess you know that's what's outside of well. stalinist circles yeah but like in right. the more sophisticated marxist circles like that was generally the understanding that you know, homosexuality was deviant behavior, but it shouldn't be illegal. And uh, Lexi was talking a bit before about uh, this is this idea of Eros kind of comes to define a lot of the thought here, um, the the repression of our sort of inner drives, and that leads to a lot of the good and the bad that comes out of this line of thinking, um, and really doesn't yeah. find itself it doesn't find itself opposed very much in these sort of psychoanalytic and psychoanalysis influenced circles until Foucault comes along and says, okay, you're talking about the ways that we, we have sexual repression in our society, but have you seen the sort of disgusting way that we talk about sex? The, the, the whole thing just sort of anchors into this like left Freudian way of kind of ignoring the later Freud where Freud gets into the death drive. And so that lets like kind of left Freudians be like repression is always really repression of love you know like we have all these yes. love instincts and, and that comes all the way back to, from that goes all the way back to Reich where Reich basically says the opposite of Freud as you know because Freud and civilization is discontent so he basically says that humanity is essentially full of all these nasty impulses and repression is needed in order to hold back those impulses so that there, there can be civilization and so therefore there will always be some kind of class division and some kind of repression in order to you know keep these instincts in line and keep civilization functioning in freud and then you know this is freud ben reich kind of mm. throws that upside down and says no humans are actually like you know all good inside and you know it's really civilization itself and our socialization that makes us bad and so it's all of these forms of social repression that make us bad and not you know our inner um, instincts and really our inner instincts are to, to make love and be communal and to work together well i think the problem like with reich and with this and all that is that it really 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 overestimates the extent to which like capitalism function relies upon sexual repression in yeah. order to reproduce itself because really all capitalism requires is that you go to work and you work and don't fuck somebody while you're working unless that's your job and then do your work and then you you know what i mean like that's other than that like everything else is just class composition and that can be reshuffled to suit the needs of capital i mean as but in the end Nelly does talk a little bit i mean this is this is on the fringes of what he talks about for sure and i think you're your criticism there is valid, Jake. He does get a little bit at this idea of the the recuperated homosexuality. Um, well, yeah, he opens up. What you're saying is correct about capitalism, but I think that the, the problem of class society that we want to abolish can't simply be reduced to capitalism, because I think the nuclear family structure and the structure of the patriarchal family itself is basically a mode of production in a way. It is basically in the family structure, in, in in household production, the family is a firm. But to the be patriarch honest, like is the, the owner and the boss, and the labor is the wife and children, and he exploits the labor of the wife and children for a surplus. But honestly, like the family structure is kind of just a holdover from feudalism. 
you know, and and so and the same kind of like the <sighs> same sort of motive, like sexual repression that that's associated with, is also a holdover from feudalism. Oh, it's a holdover from feudalism that. It's been instrumentalized in very capitalist by capitalism, but it's withering away. It's, it's, it's change. It's restructured. It's the same. I think it changes, and I think that actually, like, there might be like a new wave of cultural sexual repression in response to the kind of um, sexual freedom that's been explored in the last forty years. I can see a change in historical like discourse about sexuality. That becomes where sexual repression becomes more favored because if you look amongst like the right, they're very worried that this sexual freedom is like causing civilizational collapse. Thoughts. And so you have a lot of like you know right wing policy wonks who like are starting to kind of like think that you know we have too much sexual freedom. So I can see capitalism actually reintegrating aspects of sexual repression in the future. I mean, right, it seems like, even now that it's sort of a double bind where, like, yeah. there's, there's, you know, after the sexual revolution, we get the the recuperation of of those those impulses and find not that, that we're in a world where you're allowed to have sex or not allowed to have sex, but both. Recuperation of the nuclear family unit re relies upon there being a single income earner. This would require capitalists to wage, wage, raise wages, which could only happen after a period of massive capital devaluation. So frankly, I do not see that in the cards politically from capitalists anytime in the near future. I mean, so you're saying that you can't see capitalism basically restructuring to make the nuclear family more firm simply because it is not in its economic interest to do that? Yeah. Yes. Honest. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see, I, I mean, see the... But the thing is, what if there is a restructuring of capitalism? Like, what if there is massive devaluations and capitalists are able to have enough capital destruction to where, you know, maybe through climate change, that causes enough capital destruction where basically the capitalist cycle can go back into a boom phase and capitalists restructure society, you know, according to more like... But what, what, without, without a strong labor movement... It, demanding those uh, progressive changes what what's going to compel them to pay people more you know what i mean like yeah um, it, it could I just be general that. social chaos like fear of like like fear of like an unpaid underclass rioting basically like well fear of like crime and like based on political resistance i don't i mean I that's think, that's 30 years I, out at least i mean yeah, yeah i mean i'm just saying like i don't think we can right out of the book that capitalism could become more sexually repressive in the future. I mean, it's, it's and also, it, it's sexually general, repressive today in, in just more veiled ways, in, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, I mean, look there at the role that... Within capitalism to millennials have less sex than their parents' generation does. Yeah, let, let, me finish, that's... let me finish this. Let me finish my thought here real quick. Go for <laughs> it. There, there is a progressive tendency in capital to reduce the amount of socially necessary labor time. And I think that will underpin irreversible changes to our society that there's no turning back the clock on. I'm sorry. Like, it, okay. It's... I mean, I understand where you're coming from. And like, well, I do I... have appreciation for that forces of production determinism because that does make a really strong argument. Yeah. But yeah. There, there are new forms of social regulation that come out of this. Even in the even in Look, queer scenes, there's there's all these new forms of unfreedom around sex that have have grown. I mean, it's I, I really don't think it's it's necessarily yeah. that you need a breadwinner economy to have sexual repression. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, talking, yeah. About, I'm talking about the nuclear family style sexual repression. Well, that's, I, the, that's, 
But the sexual oppression the, that we have now results the fam- it's, it's like the Japanese syndrome. It's salt, it results from the atomization of capitalist society. It doesn't result from a new moral puritanism. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's the point to make because birth birth rates are going down. It's not because oh people are just, you know, it's sexually repressed. No one can have sex. It's it's literally we nobody well, like wants to have sex because they're continuously working. And they don't know how to function and talk to one another. Well, the yeah, institutions so the that, that like, socialized people. I, ju- I just see. I like, see schools and that sort of thing. Here's going to happen, though. Here's going to happen. Function. Jeremy Corbyn is going to crack the code on this and issue state-issued girlfriends. <laughs> oh, oh my God! The old right. <laughs> that actually <laughs> was a right-wing tabloid. A right-wing tabloid <laughs> actually claimed that. You oh, know, is, that, is that right? You, yes. You all laugh now. You all laugh now at this. Oh, but what when, when the alt right takes over, they're gonna they're gonna issue state mandated girlfriends, and yeah, you all won't be place. laughing. Oh God. But th- I mean, I Speaking just of repression. I just, oh. I don't know this re- this repression thing. I mean, I understand the nuclear family has a specific line of oppression, but th- there's a great line in in Miele here where he says, for centuries, the system has exploited the work of homosexuals to subjugate women, just as it has made abundant use of women to oppress gays. Parenthetical, any gay man need only recall his mother. And, and I think that I think that we will find as, you know, so long as there isn't a sexual revolution that actually has positive economic underpinnings, um, I think we'll we'll always find now that we've sort of broken through the initial taboo of talking about sex in the 1960s and such that that it's going to be a double world on that front until I, real yeah. change occurs. Yeah, yeah but I think where Miele gets it wrong is by kind of saying that homosexuals are the new revolutionary class, kind of. But he doesn't necessarily say that. I don't think he says that. I mean, he says that in a very universalist way. And he, but he says that they're a revolutionary the subject. In, gay, rather than to make gay the proletariat. Well, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's just he kind of flirts with those weird, new, like, new left ideas about, like, revolutionary subjectivity, though. Like, he well, doesn't he, out- That he, is there. That is there. this notion that, like. That's Marcuse. That's Marcuse. Yeah, that's Marcuse. I think he's, yeah. he wants, I think he wants a gay proletariat, not. The pro, like, you know what I mean? I don't think he wants to replace the proletariat. With right, the- but it's, but there's definitely the idea that the standpoint of women, the standpoint of homosexuals, and people like aware of this underlying transsexuality, like, the, you know, that it's not a standpoint issue. ideology, though. I it's, mean, he talks about literally, literally standpoint, like the word standpoint. This uh, is the standpoint. It's not like, standpoint yes. in the way we talk about like intersectionality today. I mean, when he's he's talking about that, he's he's got his own theory you know, you can disagree with it or, or not in towards a gay communism about what exactly makes this subjectivity sort of inclined towards, you know, building a new world and such. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm actually like s- sympathetic to this in, in a weak form, in the form that I think Marx is really getting at when, when Marx does his own kind of weak standpoint epistemology, where it's just like, look, if you're in this position, these theories are, may look different to you and may be more appealing to you. It's not in the strong Lukashian sense of like this is the truth, the standpoint of the proletariat. Yeah. Like I know, think certainly. it's it's like if you're a proletarian, you're more likely to be in a situation where you will struggle against capitalism. It's not because you have access to some kind of privileged subjectivity to knowledge. 
And that's what this guy thinks. Like he thinks that he has found like this privileged subjectivity by basically cross-dressing and being gay and stuff like that. And his conclusion from this is that everybody is as gay as I am. And that if everybody <laughs> no, he he literally I mean, says this in other so, parts of the book. So 70s new left too. Sure, you yeah. Know, like some of the lingo used. Like in, in other parts of the you book. You got references he, to Marx's early works. You got, you know. He pulls this rhetorical remover maneuver where he basically says that um, everyone is as gay. He basically argues everyone's as gay as I am, and if you don't admit that, then that is proof that you're repressing your gayness. <laughs> well, I think we should. I think we should actually um, take on the claim that he he makes. I think this is probably the most controversial claim that <laughs> essentially in everybody there's. Okay, this is actually not the most controversial claim. Uh, we were going to yeah, talk we'll about get, something we'll with arrows. Let me let me yeah, finish. That. The most controversial claim worth talking about, how about, that everyone essentially is a latent potential by transsexual. Yeah, can, uh, to read a quote. I think we should evaluate that. To read a quote, um, we think only in terms of man and or woman to the point that we cannot imagine anything but man, men or women. In ourselves, too, we recognize only the man or the woman, despite our underlying transsexual nature and despite our formation in the family, where our existential misery is determined by our relationship to mother or father. The child of the master-slave relationship between the sexes sees in him or herself only one single sex. The singleness does not seem contradicted by the evident fact that we are born from a fusion of the sexes, and yet we only need to look in the mirror during a trip to see clearly in our features both our mother and our father, monosexuality springs from the repression of transsexuality, and transsexuality is already denied before birth, which I think is very powerful. But then he goes and says this, conception itself, in fact, proceeds from the totalitarian negation of the female sex by the proclaimed uniqueness of the phallus, the sexual organ and coitus, and its power in the parental couple. Conception? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually like really down with this, and I, and I know it sounds kind of nuts, but like, uh, then, he, then he goes, then he goes <laughs> like, how's, you know, is conception going to be a problem? Like, does that sounds like a weird rad femme thing where, where they were like, yeah, the, the concept of sex itself is rape. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, like, cons like but penetration is rape. And actually, if, if any, we haven't touched on well, this. No, if only, we don't, only that's fine. But if any of our listeners get a chance Didn't to, okay. Hold on. Didn't like wasn't there like one at least early Radfem text that talked about like artificial conception? Yes. Oh. Um Shalma Firestone's dialectic of sex. Basically a, a revolution in the forces of production to where yeah, physical reproduction, biological reproduction is no longer necessary and we have baby vats. And I actually think that's one of the most fascinating ideas that come out of Marxism. And yeah, I fully support it. If, I, I if it's technologically that. possible, I full I fully support it. Well, not only do I support that, but I also support the converse of like there are people who desperately want to be able to have children, like and like give birth who can who can't. Yeah. And so like that's not something that you know someone who sees you know childbirth as like a curse is going to come up with. But it's exactly this like refractory process of feminism and then kind of like this inverted transsexual like gay explosion desire that Mealy's getting at it's like i think the first like baby that born from like a womb transplant in the united states was just born i think it's a process that was done in sweden like successfully yeah. before 
And so this is, you know, this is like super relevant. Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, like baby vats, you probably would need that to completely detach um, sexuality from the sort of material reproduction and procreation of society. <laughs> like it's kind of almost like the like the reducto ad absurdum like point of yeah that kind of like materialist logic like taken to its furthest conclusion, which I kind of agree with actually. Um, yeah, but but I, human humans are just the type of thing that would also want to like be just be able to have an artificial womb so so they could go through this really this trip <laughs> well and you can but you can see how like capitalism actually does create the conditions whereby you know um social reproduction becomes increasingly abstracted and you know and t basically de decoupled from sexuality in a way like I, I, yeah i, I mean that's the point that McNair makes in his latest article that as capitalism develops the forces of production break down the traditional family and the more that it does that the more that sexuality can be decoupled from biological necessity. McNair really misses in his article that that same argument underpins basically the stability of like the current gender system and that like the forces of production are making it possible for like kids to choose their own puberty adventure. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's one thing. That's one problem I had with Mielli though, is that he kind of just said that, you know, transsexuality just kind of a trip that you go on when you get woke. Where it seems like like people who are trans have told me, you know, it's something that you experience your entire life. Yeah. Well, he, I, he, like, it, it actually depends. I'm not saying that. I'm not, it, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying you have to have the gender dysphoria your entire life to become trans. I think anyone has the right to choose their gender no matter how they feel. But I feel like a lot of people, their experience is you know, it's something that they feel from birth and it's not like a trip they go on. I would say based on his sense. language I mean, here though, that if if some of the words we have now to describe a more permanent experience existed at the time that he might have employed them. Yeah, honestly, the, the whole born this way sort of narrative is usually like you have to push that specifically in order to be taken seriously by medical professionals and to get like treatment for it okay so it's something that's often latched onto even if it's not necessarily true well and the way we're talking about this i think relates to a problem of the way this is written and the way this guy thinks about this stuff because he basically went and started doing gay stuff and was like man i'm having a great time like this is what i should always be doing and then makes this mental leap to think that that's what everybody should be doing and everyone will find this as fulfilling as he does. <laughs> and so it's like, there are probably some people for whom, you know, being trans, like, yeah, they'll, they'll feel like I was always this way. This is what I always wanted. There's some people who are, you know, just dabbling in it and that's fine too. You know what I mean? Like there's so much that we actually don't really understand about like human sexuality and desire because, you know, the science like underpinning it is still pretty shaky and, you know, still – um you know it leads to and like our own bodies are the fucking laboratory in a way like well yeah and like i mean a lot of it you know to really understand like sexuality not be be can be unnatural because if it wasn't natural it wouldn't exist well and it's also like to understand like humanity as a species requires us to a certain extent like understanding anthropology and you know yeah, biological yeah. science and a lot of like archaea you know and all all those yeah, these like different principles we we still know so little about that's hard to say proclaim anything i think about human sexuality or desire with a great deal of certainty which is what sketches me out about this piece so much because you know he is as sure of seem as seemingly sure of his pronouncements 
of it as you could possibly be, and he presents very little evidence to back up any of his extraordinary claims. Yes, that was I agree, Jake, completely. He really makes no anthropological citations to back up his claims. He doesn't cite any psychological studies. He's just he basically bases it off his own subjectivity. It's an internal, think, also re, also internal references to psychoanalysis, his own theory. Yeah, like it's yeah, obvious yeah. he's read a lot of stuff, but he's not really he's not doing anything empirical. He's just kind of he's like he's on a trip, as he would say. Like he, this, this is and, written from a sort of we might call like Foucauldian position. You know what I mean? Like against a, a certain kind of bourgeois reason and even a sense of sanity. Like the way that the liberatory way that people are using the word schizophrenia. I mean, if you see someone that has real schizophrenia, maybe they really are in touch with the way th something closer to the way things are. But that's not how you could operate as a person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. And 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 so just to talk about that element of things, like I don't know. Well, it's obvious that from reading about this Miele guy, he was very much in these kind of lumpen circles that were big especially in like the time of autonomia which is when this was written like when this was written you know you had high school students taking over their schools colleges being occupied like you know red brigades fighting fascists in the streets you had like um you know underground radio stations run by radicals you all kinds of like um squats and stuff take factories being occupied and a big component of this movement was like this kind of fringe circle that, um, you know, composed of like basically, you know, gay people, trans people, um, drug users, like people who are cast out of society, especially at this time. Yeah. And there's a basis for that. There's a basis for like anti-psychiatry and, and even anti-psychoanalysis yeah. to dovetail with, you know, queer and trans stuff because <laughs> they're, they're yeah. considered and like one thing I was going to add is there's actually an ICC article on this period where they condemn how much all these gay people and drug users were like corrupting the true proletarian nature of what should have been going Ugh. on. So like that kind of That's puts Cirelli. it in context though. Like it kind of puts it in context because like yeah, I'm sure the people of, he was polemicizing against were like, yeah, you know, these like hyper-masculine Italian stereotypes. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like Bifo, Bifo. The whole thing, yeah. says about Bifo is so epic. He's like, yeah, like I, I, I want to bring, I want to <laughs> show that to make, like the make you my girl. That, like Bifo today, be like, <laughs> hey, you know that Bifo is actually a chauvinist according to Mario Mielli. Yeah, I think, but he's so he's very much into this transgressive culture. But I think that kind of brings us to the elephant in the room, which is yeah, where he well, kind of I, I have I have I have an intro to this, right? So he, part of the problem with this too is that he's basically just taking all of like kind of the reactionary um, kind of accusations that get leveled at homosexuality and just like flipping it around. So it's like, uh, oh, okay. Right. Well, guys can fuck guys. Well, why not, why not fuck animals? Why not fuck trees? Why not fuck kids? And he just goes, why not indeed? Why not indeed, sir? <laughs> I, I, yes. And he actually says that like he, he's heavily suggested. Yeah. Did we find him saying fucking animals or trees? Because um, I, I only saw the, the the kind of weird positive reference to pedophilic. Sorry, I had yeah. some weird shit yeah. over there. I didn't want to. I grabbed under that. Well, I mean, I, I feel you. He actually does I, talk about necrophilia and corporophilia, which is like. Which is even grosser. Like, at least trees are clean, you know? Yeah, but, um, yes, he does. Was, 
hold on. There is a part where he responds positively to pedophilia. I mean, that kind of shows the disturbing aspect of this line of thought that he is kind of going on. Well, it doesn't kind of show it. It does reveal, basically, that, you know, there is a fatal flaw in this way of thinking. I mean, you have to sort of look at it from the movement at the time. Like, generally, gay liberation movement, like, as it was developing, like, even, even in, like, the 19th century, when it was, like, not, like, beginning of the 20th century, I mean, when it's, like, not, it's just starting to develop. And there are, like just generally arguments that we would consider really distasteful that weren't meant to be like edgy or transgressive that were like thinking like defending pedophilia along with homosexuality because the two were commonly conflated like you see that like them making trying to make the movement in general trying to make positive reference to greek sexuality rather than pederasty yes well there's that letter that isn't there a letter that foucault signed for example about um well yeah Yeah. this is what i would call part of french's use for example guise (laughs) dog the infamous communizer theorist he actually you know promotes pedophilia in uh, one of his articles and has very questionable views on rape um foucault I um, mean, Guy Hanekem. To like, be a fair, lot of Polanski lives Alice there. in Monsterland. He doesn't state it outright. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> no, he. I think he outright. comes pretty damn close in Alice in Monsterland. He comes pretty damn close. He comes pretty damn close. He Too dances close around it. Yeah, I, I he think dances it's as bad as this man. He compares guy. it. He compares it to buying things. He compares oh, having. Lord. Yeah. 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 It, so basically, having a candy bar is like having sex, buying uh, a candy bar. Why, why I, don't I would we say, respond? yes. We, we should, um, we should, though, think like the entire fucking 60s and 70s, like, queer theory scene was just plagued by this shit. But well, why? The, the thing is, the this sense, is like a. I mean, because because one the age of consent laws were were weaponized against a lot of homosexual people. That is true. For example, in the UK, like the age of consent laws are still different for gay people than straight people, mm-hmm. which is fucked up and wrong, and you know is a homophobic law. But so I think that time, that, like that minors... the kernel of truth in in wanting to I think there there's a kernel of truth in wanting to. Uh, treat children different differently in this respect, but it becomes an endorsement of pedophilia in the hands of sort of bong rip transgressive sixties and seventies <laughs> theorists. But the thing yeah. is, in Reich, in the hands to the I French, don't really get that in Reich and Marcuse though. What Reich and Marcuse say is that adolescent sexuality shouldn't be repressed, as in youth should be allowed to have sex with other youth, right? And that the family shouldn't repress that, and it's completely natural for teenagers to fuck. And that is, like, in my opinion, absolutely correct. Whereas, like, Mieli is going as far to say that a 15-year-old and a 30-year-old should be able to fuck. Let's let's get the actual quote up, too. Let's, let's, because we're, we're yeah, talking I, about I it so much. I have it in much. front of me. Go for it. Um, so, again, it's all about Eros. Uh, the harnessing of Eros to procreation, in fact, has never been really necessary since free sexuality in conditions that are more or less favorable naturally reproduces the species without needing to be subject to any kind of constraint. So again, like a lot of the other things in here, he's saying something kind of interesting. 
On the other hand, if the struggle for the liberation of homosexuality is decisively opposed to the heterosexual norm, one of its objectives is the realization of new gay relations between men and women, relations that are totally different from the traditional couple and are aimed, among other things, at a new form of gay procreation and pedophilic coexistence with children. Gross. Like, what, what boggles my mind... God, God damn euros. It really boggles my mind how generative this like total bong rip schizoid post delusion Marcuse in a blender time rip whatever like how much <laughs> like, that needs to be sampled. <laughs> yeah, oh well, honestly, like there's so much bullshit in here. And some of it has some real narrative resonance in a way that is this. We're not in the realm of science. You know, we're in like a different, interesting human narrative realm that is dressed up in lab coats a lot and has just lost its fucking mind. And (laughs) yeah, we're we're in the realm of the pamphlet. I mean, I personally think, for example, on that front that uh, that you can make a, a scientifically rooted argument for sort of a, a universal sure. latent bisexuality, latent transsexuality. I mean, he he says um, something like uh, the man is the woman and the woman is the man, basically, right? And like, you know, sure. And and I think uh, in, there's a way there's a way to make that point. I mean, and I, just don't think I think does. Proof of that point is that it's nobody fits absolutely. In either gender binary, like I don't know, one's one hundred percent homosexual or one hundred percent heterosexual. I think that yeah. you know, it's, well, it's there's, that's kind of an accepted notion that it's basically a spectrum, and and there's no in that sexuality isn't strictly definable in the categories like that. I think that's closer to the truth than basically everyone's gay and just hasn't realized it because society is repressing them. Yeah, I, I think mean, it is true. That under communism, a lot more people will be gay because they won't be repressed anymore. I, I don't think know, everyone. I don't know that under communism it, it will be more people will be gay or something like that. that because I, I feel that these the very way we think of heterosexuality and homosexuality um, falls apart when you have the kind of uh, androgyny that I think communism suggests and not just androgyny but if you look throughout history uh, I mean I, I think what a lot of people on the left aren't willing to admit right sexual orientation it, it is mediated by biology uh, but this doesn't mean we're born with sort of like a genital radar if anything sexuality is sort of desire plugged into this really complicated reproductive dance yeah. uh, with well, biological predispositions. But if yeah. you look at the ways that underlying biology is channeled, you can see that it's varied pretty greatly. Uh, if you look at the classical civilizations where the biological dimorphism of humans is loosely existing is is manifest in a psychic rather than a physical sort of division, right? You have uh, in Rome the dominant sexual position is the masculine, the receiving is the feminine among relationships between men. There's, there's no coherent homosexual. And so, so that still plays into this sort of 
it seems timeless reproductive fetish that's at the bottom of human attraction but at, at the same time it's based not on physical bodies and i mean this is a massive widespread practice but on the idea of masculine or feminine essences so i, I think that that underlying biology can plug into very very different kinds of sublimation of the reproductive drive well essence is i mean just look like at the way butch and femme is used in in uh contemporary queer culture i almost feel that's a that's a sort of return to in, in a less regressive way this roman idea of essences over bodies well, I just want, like, I'm, I'm like i'm way out of my depth here in terms of you know gender studies and shit like that but you know it's, it's there like there are biological differences between males and females which will tend them sure. towards certain traits that will find some kind of expression and aggregate right so sure, even yeah. if like you formally abolished like gender enforcement mechanisms like you know you Whoever wants to wear a dress can wear a dress, blah, 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 blah. You know, you're still going to get, like, uh, clear differentiations in kinds of behavior and preferences uh, in terms of people who, you know, have a you know have a penis or a vagina or whatever. So that's still going to be there. And there might even be, a, to a certain extent, like, some level of reification of that and perception of there being some kind of essence. Um, but I don't think – I think, you know, if you change the material conditions of society – you know, you will actually under undermine the basis for having like this regime of enforcing people's behavior that they have to conform to sort of X or Y category for the Nate for the for, uh, uh, of reproducing society. So you're saying I it's mean, like biology is basically biology is tyranny, and we would overcome the tyranny of biology. Yeah, um, that's kind actually of. I mean, I, I, guess, I, I just like, don't think sexual. I mean, I understand that sexual attraction is bio, biologically rooted. I mean, that's where I start from thinking about it. But the the you know the human mind is not such a singular thing that this maps that neatly onto sexual dimorphism. And and if you look at in history the, I mean, widespread practice of what we would call homosexuality that is not conceived of as such. Um, I think that we can see that that sublimation of reproductive impulses is completely laden with potentials under different material circumstances that we can't imagine, especially I mean, with the, the opening up of androgyny that I think communism would allow. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think overall, under communism, society will be more feminized. I know that's the yeah you're coming from the position of a trans one, but the role of masculinity that it has historically played as like yeah. a strong worker like physical strength overall I mean, is not necessarily right. yeah it's won't necessarily be needed under communism. Maybe there'll be some kind of modified form of masculinity that will exist that will be like just you know for sexual purposes or like complete entirely aesthetic purposes but how are we how are we going to I mean you look at the way people raise their kids though and it's so goddamn forced i mean these these roles are so but how are we how are we going to create hard men to make good times yeah how, how, oh my God. <laughs> viagra is, productive you know, <laughs> productive forces i mean 
biology won't really matter all that much when we're able to modify our bodies the way we are. Well, even now. Oh yeah, once we have baby vats, I think biology just won't matter at all. And I think <laughs> yeah, that like... it, I think I think part of it is developing the productive forces so that humans can have complete control over their sexuality and like what genitals we're born with have no determining factor in our sexuality and how we We should have read the Xeno we should have read the Xeno feminist manifesto instead of this. Honestly, I mean, we we could, but honestly, this has a lot more to chew on. I love Xeno feminist manifesto. It's like we did read it for another episode. It's it's like There's a deep a feel for me. It's like a deep feel for me. Like I'm def I'm like way down with that, and like it's more cons politically consistent than this, of course. But this yeah. this has like uh I don't know. I got so many mixed feelings from this. I got absolute disgusted cringes. I just got like winces, and I had I did get some feels from it, and I did. There were parts I could, I actually did feel like I could relate to, but there were also parts that I just thought were absolutely idiotic or just well, or just not even like well thought out or proven at all. Yeah, I wasn't impressed. Yeah, the the teleology of the butthole is a little, it's a little much. Like you know, what's the line in the sand here? It's whether you are you in touch with your butthole. Now I, I, like, I have to say yeah, it's probably it's probably rhetorical. Like there's a lot of overstatement and like trolling and sensationalism here. But <laughs> like I mean, 70s Euro Ultra Left. You know this is this comes out of the 70s Euro Ultra Left. You know this it is really the same does. people who were reading Guy's Dove and who were, you know, questioning the Holocaust and, like, <laughs> well, let's just face I'm, it. Like, there were a I, lot of very strange I'm, figures. In the I prefer the the, the, line, the butthole line in the sand to the Holocaust well, denial. Yeah, that, that, I'll, yeah. definitely, I'll definitely take that. But, like, what I'm saying is, it's like, kind, there's this ultra-contrarian, like, like contrarian, kind of transgressive, almost lumpen Marxist underground culture. And this is a product of that. And Yeah, that makes I sense. Think, that makes, and I think that's what kind of makes it interesting. And it's the same it, kind of it's culture. It's a powerful rhetorical us, device. It's the same shit that brings us Gizdov and also like the early Negri and, you know, a lot of this, Um, even if they all have different views on stuff, they, they do kind of come from this underground ultra left milieu that has a lot of questionable views very often and takes very transgressive positions, often because they see their main goal as being the negation of the official left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of similar to the Scum Manifesto in that way. Like, basically, <laughs> you, you're not really sure if it's like satire or not to a certain degree. Like, is this think... person like taking the position that the male the male sex should just be abolished except for <laughs> breeding? As like you know, oh, it's just trolling, haha. Or is it like straight up what they believe? And the person I remember shot Andy Warhol, so. Valerie Solanas. Yeah, Solanas. Very critical support. I think Solanas um, is trolling more so than Mielli is. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't buy that Solanas is like super trolly, honestly. Yeah, Solanas was I mean, part of an anarchist group that was led by a man. Like, it's, she's obviously, like, if she really believed what she wrote in that pamphlet, she wouldn't yeah. have lived is, the life she did. Isn't there something about, like, uh, like uterus envy that's, like, basically a parody of, like, penis envy in Freud? Like, something like that? Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of know what you're talking about. 
in like yeah, the scum it's, manifesto. It's been a while since I've subjected myself to the scum manifesto. Yeah, it's been a while. I'll pass. Yeah. So I, I would say though, for all for all the complexities, I, I do I do think it's it's an interesting read for uh, anybody listening uh, to take a look at. I mean, it's a pretty short text. Uh, this it's just one chapter out of this guy's yeah. book, and and you get some interesting. You get a look at a very different theoretical world. First off, you get also some really interesting. We didn't get to cover this polemics against. Uh, what we would now call, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminism, and you get some some real strangeness. But hey, there, well, think, there's something to it. Well, I think want to talk about like was what did people think of his criticisms of feminism? Because he does kind of call feminists like, you know, cops against the homosexuals and. I mean, he he also he calls it ultimately for you know women and gays to you know yeah, stand by side by side as comrades se. and such. But he's saying that feminists are getting in the way of them standing side by side by comrades by saying that because they cross dress, they're therefore mocking the feminine and uh, um, reifying the feminine. Well, I thought his argument they don't against realize. that was great. Uh, the way yeah yeah I thought his argument was good actually. That's what was one more interesting uh, parts of this. But um, I'm trying to remember how he kind of answered that. Um, I'll search for the quote because it, it's worth it's worth going through. One moment. What is that? It sounds like something. Yeah, oh, it sounds that? like Tom Waits is building a fucking shed. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> it's not me. I think it was. I think it must have been Grant. Yes. Not me. Yeah, t- tell tell Tom Waits to keep it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will do. That is me scrolling. Got it. <laughs> Let's build a I think I found a quote here. Um, there can be no doubt that queens, quote, effeminate homosexuals and transvestites are among those men closest to transsexuality. Even if frequently because of oppression, oppression they live their transsexual desire in alienated forms infected by false guilt. Queens and transvestites are those males who even though male, understand better what it means to be a woman in this society where the men are the most dis- the men most disparage are not the brutes, phallocrats, or violent individualists, but rather those who most resemble women. It is precisely the harsh condemnation of effeminacy that sometimes lead leads gay men to behave in a way that is functional to the system, to become their own jailers. They then balance their, quote, abnormal adoration for the male, the tough guy, the hoodlum, with a, quote, normal, neurotic, anti-woman attitude. I feel this is more his 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 critique of gay assimilation. I, I've got a quote here. Uh, sure, Many yeah. feminists criticize us queens because we often tend in our dress and behavior to copy the stereotyped feminine fetish that women have to fight. But if a woman dressed like a starlet or cover girl is normal for the system today, a man dressed in a similar way is quite abnormal. As far as normal people are concerned, and so our transvestism has a clear revolutionary character. There is no harm in us queens having our bit of fantasy. We demand the freedom to dress as we like, to choose a definite style one day and an ambiguous one the day after, to wear both feather and ties, leopard skin and rompers, the leather queen's chains, black leather and whip, the greasy rags of the street porter, or a tool maternity dress. We enjoy the bizarre, digging into prehistory, the dustbins and uniforms of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, costumes and symbols that best express the mood of the moment. Thrift store manifesto. 
If Marlene Dietrich in her glitter is an emblem of the oppression of women, she is at the same time a gay symbol. She is gay and her image in her voice, her sequins form a part of a homosexual culture, a desire that we queens recognize in ourselves. It is true that for a woman today to present herself like a Vogue cover girl is in general anti-feminist and reactionary, but for a huh. gay man to dress as he pleases, boldly expressing a fantasy which capital has relegated to the reified pages of Vogue, has a certain revolutionary cutting edge. We are fed up with dressing as men. We ask our sisters in the women's movement then, don't burn the clothes that you cast off, they might be useful to someone, and we have in fact always longed for them. In due course, moreover, we shall invite you all to our great coming out ball. Okay, that's the quote I meant to read. Yeah, I mean, I can get down with that. I, I can get down with most of that, although, you know, it's not anti-feminist and reactionary for a woman to like... Right, but no, like one had a, no one had a critique of the feminist critique of... Uh, femininity in 1970-whatever. I'm sure some yeah. people were like, I don't buy this. <laughs> well, I'm sure, yeah. It didn't register as, as sensical to plenty, but but it was sort of the standard uh, yeah. theoretical position that like encouraging women to be feminine right. was fucked up or something. And so he is writing yeah. that atmosphere. Yeah, I will I, say I, that there's something, there's something to got it. some good burns on the uh, PSI, Italian, um, I mean, no, the PCI, the Italian Communist Party. Oh, the protectors? Yeah. He's got a good, he's got some burns on them for just, you know, when they actually do take up homosexual issues, it's simply to kind of just be like these fake protectors, like this racket, this protection racket, and it's not to actually <laughs> aid in their liberation. And so it's, it's very much in line with kind of like the anti-politics uh, autonomy uh, kind of like critiques of political parties and representation as popular at that time. Yeah. Which today I don't really think holds up, but I just thought that, you know, like he definitely had some legitimate grievances against the PCI because they really did promote this kind of repressive family. They, they want, they, if anyone wanted to kind of maintain that um, single earner household, ideal it was you know the 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 communists like they kind of wanted to maintain that patriarchal nuclear family ideal but kind of glorify the role of the woman in the household rather than question it was that and, because their connection to like the trade union movement essentially and totally yeah the fact the fact that part of the labor piece was paying yes. you know man enough to support it yeah to support totally yeah, that yeah, was totally steel. related to the basically like upholding weight by upholding waged labor they had to kind of uphold the gendered aspect of wage labor as historically developed. So therefore it may kind of ends up endorsing this patriarchal workerism because they just become economists, trade union secretaries. Yeah. It's a family wage. And it also has to do with the, the Stalinist productivist kind of need in, within I, I, Russia. I wanted to say this earlier, but there's like about how there's a tendency for capitalism to break down the nuclear family and how it, you know, it, makes us that women don't have to do as much unpaid labor and that they become more integrated into the workforce. But I think that in a lot of cases, what really happens is women still have to do this unpaid reproductive labor to work, to survive. So it's rather than a liberation from the domestic burden to the burden of wage labor, it's a double burden. And so I feel like that's still a part of, I feel like that is still a factor of how patriarchy is materially reproduced under capitalism today. Yeah, there's a more diffuse kind of like de facto masculine domination that doesn't always take the 
kind of patriarchal, like oh, concentrated patriarchal, <laughs> like man at head of household telling you what to do and hitting you if you disobey. Well, I feel like it's kind of been because production has been rooted from the household, the society at large, like the enforcement of patriarchal norms is now kind of taken on by the society at large. If that yeah. makes sense. So, yeah, yes, so, so, yes, but, so, but sort of. Like, yes, and because there's a, also this really... I I don't want to sound too like, gee whiz, well, but um, there there is like a, first of all, like an unprecedented level of like uh, independence for women that's opened up by bourgeois capitalist society. And there is also a really like i can't believe the kind of i don't know how else to characterize it how naive how humanist as progress on oh, gen- I would definitely on gender see like I no there, there's there's, there. there's something really like when i think about where millie is coming from i mean millie you know killed himself when he was like 30 lived on the margins of society like was a total outcast and that's what gives a lot of his critiques of feminism bite is like look you you know like you're really standing with the patriarchy against us like um but and and i don't know the the government pays for my like medication and stuff you know it's like it's all covered you know for me to be like a queer person <laughs> like they got my queer meds and it's it's on the house you know, it, like they pay for it it's fucking weird oh, yeah I shit is weird deny, shit is different there, like, i never denied there's a reason julius evola i love saying this there's a reason julius evola the ultimate reactionary said that capitalism is just as corruptive and revolutionary as communism because he realized that how much it does break down the traditional family and the domestic sphere as a sphere of production. I'm just saying that I think that the revolution isn't complete. It can only be completed through a full socialization of production. Well, sure, I mean, but the guess, story, so the even, story even of though, women entering the workforce is, is, is not dissimilar from the story of proletarians being created out of primitive accumulation well, generally. It is, a story. I mean, it is a story of proletarians being created. Well, what, I mean, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is that literally the proletariat is a class. It's creation out of primitive accumulation. Um, like the move from the feudal life to the life of a wage laborer. I mean, that happened in England that Marx writes about in capital a sort of weird parallel is happening to women now. So it's like they're being liberated from their bondage to, uh, to a you new know, kind of oppressive be, reality think, that is still freer. That is still wage labor. But I still think that there's a double burden that women end up having to take on because yeah. there's still a social ideology that tells society that they're expected to do the reproductive labor. They're still, they still end up with having to do the reproductive labor and work for a living. I mean, but in most, but don't in like in most divorce cases, women end up being the ones getting the kids. I mean, isn't that most of the time the men don't ask, and that oh, okay. doesn't is never incorporated into that statistic. Well, okay, I, I, I think they're you know, they're, okay, so b- bong rip anthropology, like there is like a period after a baby is born where in traditional societies, for the most part, women stay with the baby like as much as they can, like and it varies from culture to culture. But like that does create a sort of implied um, division of labor. That by itself, the the condition of pregnancy, and the fur- the further that we get from that being like the fundamental condition of femaleness or whatever, like 
you know, or, or womanness or, you know, whatever the fuck, like the less of a problem this will be. But we're not like completely apart from that. And, uh, well, I think, to, to, I think it's like my that completely like it's right now, basically, yeah, by default, um, the social task of raising a kid falls to the parent, in most cases, the mother, because, you know, uh, right. So, I mean, that that's and that I mean, you know, until you socialize, until you socialize child, it's, care, it's complicated, but yeah, until you until you completely socialize child care. Yeah, you, you're going to basically have that. In a way, child care is already kind of socialized, right. like schools. Yeah. Schools in like poor neighborhoods and ghettos don't actually function like schools because they really can't. They can't actually keep up to date with all the education that's like needed for colleges and that sort of thing. And so they basically end up just being daycares, really. And the teachers are expected to fill in the roles that the parents are failing to because the parents are like either looking for work or they're not really there in the household for one reason or another. And that's like one of the byproducts that you get from the nuclear family. People are more free in a bourgeois sense, but they still remain atomized and they're even more poorly socialized than before, really. Well, they're free, but they're deprived because I guess like the third, there's the school, there's the parent, and then there's the mean streets, and those are the three three people raising the kids, you know. So it's like you know that is like, there's a kind of freedom in that, but it's a freedom to inhabit like a massively materially deprived uh, section of society and You're, uh, be subject yeah. basically yeah. to you know, have, have to go through criminal rackets to have money in order to have any kind of more freedom to you know live in You're, any kind of dignity. Basically, children are being forced to be taken care of and socialized through incredibly broken civil institutions yeah, that cap- are becoming cap- worse over time. Capitalism always, and early early Marx, and even, I think it's in the manifesto, it's like, like it really abolishes the proletarian family. It doesn't necessarily abolish the bourgeois family. In fact, the reason why the family wage was thought of as an accomplishment by the union movement is, is it's a sort of luxury good to have a, a, a household with, you know, 1950s gender reaction oppression dynamics. Like, well, I think that is also another part where labor aristocracy analysis actually comes in use is yeah. when workers actually become homeowners and full on patriarchs. They basically have no interest in communism anymore and see themselves as pearl, as small property holders. That's where me, I think Mealy's like um, Mealy's like standpoint epistemology gets its jump off from is that very dynamic of the patriarchal small property holder. Th- that's why people that are lo- still looking for hope in the Italian proletariat are appealing to this kind of standpoint that he does. Towards yeah, them. I think that the autonomists are in this period we're really trying to figure out who is the proletariat and how do we unite the proletariat and it kind of started out with just the workerist conception of it's a factory worker we have to focus on the factory worker but then the complexity of the social movement basically forces them to realize that other groups in society are proletarianized and subject to other forms of oppression and so Marxism really forces itself to recognize that it has to deal with this issue theoretically. And theoretically, I'll say the autonomous movement and you know, the ultra-left of the 70s is a mess, but it's grappling with real shit. You know? 
know, that's coming from the dynamics of the class struggle in this period and, you know, the industrialization of the poor economies and it's all kinds of stuff going on. It's a tremendously generative time for theory, and it's honestly pretty inspirational to people that want to get beyond the multiple interlocking systems of oppression versus class-first workerism and that yeah, kind of stale you know. dynamic. These, this literature is really doing it all. Like it's, and it really sees it all as one thing. And, you know, that it's not necessarily that rigorous, but the arguments like in conclusions, it's just tremendously generative packed with ideas. And I don't know, I bet you could do some like real science around some of these conclusions instead of just doing Freud games. Is there anything else you wanted to cover or? Everybody has to come out of the closet right now. <laughs> Did you know that? Everyone, everyone has to come out at work. Right now, okay. I actually, it's the, I, gen, uh, it's the general uh, orientation strike. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I Mike McNair said it was easier to come out at work and to his own family. I actually have something to wow. say yeah. um, in the spirit of that. Um, yeah, I prefer dubs over subs. Whoa, and uh, you know, I, um, yeah, that's just who I've always been, and uh, I make no apologies for it. You, you know, I, I, I always kind of knew. I never said anything. Yeah, I, I told my friends, but I, I, I mean, never some people, said it some, to you. Some people, some people say that makes me a basic anime fan, but you know what? I mean, you know, that, don't listen to them. Yeah, you just, you just do you, babe. You just do you. Yeah, and uh, the moral of the story is butt sex is revolutionary. Butt stuff is revolutionary. <laughs> so play with yourself, fam. Critical is personal, man. Listen, if you're, if you're. If you're a guy, you're listening to this podcast, just give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, biologically speaking, there is the prostate, and it has nerve endings, and it's just a state of mind. So That's, basically, yeah, biologically speaking, universally, categorically, you like butt stuff. And Darwin would no There it. are really no good reasons not to do butt stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, poop, yeah. poop comes out of there, though. That's gross. Yeah, oh, come on. I'm just being let let your mind wander. Rid you, yourself of the poop first. Wash and it then, and then eat it in public. <laughs> well, I feel like that's different. I and you know, I, just because it's repressed doesn't mean it's the same. Yeah, getting getting a <laughs> prostate orgasm is different. Well, actually, that kind of brings us to one final kind of big point that I think we all kind of kind of agreed on was that just because something's repressed doesn't mean that it's necessarily good yeah you know like yeah. like the, and it's kind of like the logic that he ends up following that leads him to suggest that pedophilia is like you know well, and i also feel like if 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 straight men um tried to act with women like gay men act with each other like it just it would not have it would not re have like the same dynamics you know what i mean well like, it it would it, the whole sexual liberation movement was blind to what you know what we were talking about it's kind of the same cluster of idea that the you know like the left niche the left uh, freudians are ignoring about what freud calls death drive but you could just be a darwinian and kind of just be like well apes like to you know pile into hierarchies and and compete and often do so violently and can be very people cruel. are mean yeah, people people can be very cruel, and it, it's something, and it, it is genuinely something about our nature, and that's why you can't just have like fuddy duddy, like you know, 
open-minded pedophilic relationships because you can't trust that shit like that's that's the power dynamics are going to be all fucked up and yeah, i think pe- it's pe- like the whole new left was really bad at this the whole new left ca- cannot yeah, deal this with this it's, it's kind of this idea that we just have to liberate ourselves from the state and it's all its repressions and whatever comes out is going to be good because repression is always bad no matter what. And so if there is repression, we must fought, we must oppose it. And so yeah, that's the, it basically that's kind of leads and it can yeah, it is kind of disastrous. And yeah. I yeah, and so I God, now I feel like I'm a conservative in a way. Well, I mean, look, I'm sit, I'm sitting here in a dress and shit, so it's really not like <laughs> you don't have to be like a phobe to agree with this. Like there, yeah, there's, that's a, the there, point. there's a way to like carve it up. So you're not, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you know who didn't, who, who, you know who really repression? Is... Matt Lauer is on the front lines against repression. Okay. When he wants to show somebody his dick, he just does it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the logic. You can say that, you know, people are going with here. Like you can take it in that logic. Yeah. Kevin Spacey read this and chose to live as a gay man now. It's fine. <laughs> And yeah, Louis. So maybe it's, maybe it's not that humans are naturally good or naturally bad, but that there's different drives that we have that have to be channeled in certain waves through society. And we're always going to have to have like abstractions yeah. and mediations to deal with that. And we're never going to have this kind of like this like utopian, unmediated paradise world. Honestly, it's because of these weird, fucked up drives that I kind of think that people should have some crazy vr porn and just like keep that shit to themselves you know what i mean and like yeah like and if they they want to like you know play with that on the internet or whatever that's great and they can like do that but just like don't you know we're we're gonna have to account for that fucked up stuff and and put it somewhere channel it something is that a solid endorsement of lollycon Ew! Uh, oh God! I, uh, I didn't even think of that. But I don't. I. Ugh, ugh. Oh God! That's yeah, terrible. I don't know. That's terrible. We have. We don't have answers to these questions. I don't. I don't have answer. But Rex, I don't you're, just going, you're just going classic Freud now. Sublimate the drive. I'm just gonna just go get it away Rousseau from society. Get it I'm away. Just, I'm just gonna go classic Rousseau and say that the repression of tyranny is liberty. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Hmm. Jeez. Dialectics. You just gotta think of it in dialectics, you know? Maybe. Yeah. It's... Yeah, the the repression of tyranny. There is something to that. And it's a problem because we want a you know world devoid of uh you know class domination and the state. And when you so do that class, class domination do and that, the state when... is how most repression is you know channel today when you repress tyranny that's when the right turns around and goes i guess see you're the real repressors (laughs) (laughs) so much for the tolerant left yeah so much they caught us they caught us admitting we don't believe in the aggression principle yeah yeah (laughs) oh so much for a stateless society i can't even hit on 14 year olds in a mall oh But I mean, that is kind of the weakness of like the classical anarchist position is, you know, once the state has been abolished spontaneously, everyone's just going to self-organize into like autonomous communes where everything is like great and everyone's free. Like, and then they ignore like when this actually happened in Spain, like the communes are basically like completely patriarchal and all competed with each other. <laughs> uh, 
how do we deal with pedophilia or communism? Just kill them. And stuff like Just that. kill them. them? I mean, probably I jail. Probably jail? Jail. Like, I, I thought... Did you skip to just kill them, though? <laughs> just kill them. I don't, I don't know. Psychiatric just... treatment. What, what, if, what about the ones that don't necessarily really want to have sex with kids, but have, like, urges? Psychiatric when... treatment. I often find I often find I I think when people say things like, you know, that they that they have that drive, but they but they don't do it. um, I've I've noticed that it seems like a kind of self-valorization or like a martyrdom complex that perpetuates the existence of the the sort of subjectivity. I personally think that anybody can get rid of that drive. Like, I, I, I have a hard time believing that if who's hardwired to do if, that if, if yeah if, if gender and and like and all kinds of stuff is like pliable in the way that i'm not like i'm not saying i just chose to do whatever like i do think there was some kind of compulsion but like i think things are flexible enough that that dude could probably get off like a 22 year old or something instead of yeah, a 12 year old you can come up with something i, I, I don't know i don't know well seems, and there, i mean there's possible there is something to, me. to be said for repression where it's like you know you don't you don't have to act out every like desire that uh, you I feel repression I mean, like, often often sort of funnels its way into acting out these things you know in a, in a yeah. sense I think ex- yeah. expression I, in an environment that can't harm other people and and is is treatment oriented and such Well yeah just yeah just stay away I mean, from the playground. How hard is I that? I don't know. And the mall I mean, really yeah like I, Although, not again like you look at like look at like Jared Fogel right like oh that guy, God. that guy had like the easiest gig in society. All he had to do was pretend to, pretend, pretend to enjoy eating Subway and not get fat, and also not look at child porn. And no, it was worse. He just could not handle. Was, he actively hit on fourteen-year-olds. No, he was a he was an actual active pedophile that was given power to sell sandwiches because he lied about eating sandwiches, and capitalism emboldened a pedophile to sell sandwiches. And I can't. I try to explain to my family that, like, I've had this conversation with my family that nothing gives me the sense of absurdity in the world, much like this guy got famous to sell sandwiches and is a pedophile and subway up old and a pedophile. I can't deal with this world. You know, like, mom, I can't deal with this world. People are like, weird, man. Like, it's like, or even like the Matt Lauer thing where it's like, all he had to do was uh, show up, be affable, read the teleprompter and not show his dick to his coworkers. Right? And he used yeah. to used used to have great hair, but now he doesn't have, to have the hair anymore. He can go to work looking like somebody smeared Vaseline on his head and poured some salt and pepper on it. And it's not even even; it's all it's all splotchy and all over the place. He can just show up looking like that. All he has to do is read a teleprompter and be like, "Oh man, things are bad in Libya. Uh, up next, how to spice up your potato salad for the holiday season." All he had to do was that. And not show his dick to his coworkers. That's not how brains work. Eleven, though. 11 million dollars a year. <laughs> Eleven million dollars a year. All he had to do was not show his dick to his coworkers, and somehow he fucks it up. I, I bet know. making eleven million dollars a year has to do with wanting to do that. Jake, yeah, I think Jake. It takes a lot of skill. <laughs> it takes a lot of skill and effort not to do that. Like you know, it just slips <laughs> out. It just slips out. You, There's a Seinfeld know, you, episode about this. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> is there really? Yeah, no, Elaine is in the car and 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 he just takes it out and she's baffled. Oh my god. 
Oh wow! But uh, but I think I remember that now. Actually, do yet. they give Elaine a fair hearing? Yes. Like, no, good. she's rightfully baffled. It, we're you know I know uh, Seinfeld. I almost said communism has no morals and no hugs. <laughs> no Seinfeld has no morals and no hugs. But they, the moral of that scene is definitely that that guy was a creep. <laughs> How was your date? Oh, the date. The date. Yeah, how was it? Interesting. Really? Oh, yeah. Why? What happened? Let's see. How shall I put this? Well, just put it. He took it out. He what? He took it out. He took what out? It. He took it out? Yes, sir, Bob. He couldn't. He did. Well, you were involved in some sort of amorous... No. You mean he just... Yes. Are you sure? Oh, quite. There was no mistaking it? Jerry. So you were talking, mm -hmm. you were having a pleasant conversation, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden... Yeah. It. It. Out. Out. Well, I, I can't believe this. I know Phil. He he's a good friend of mine. We play softball together. How could this be? Oh, it be. You got any other friends you want to set me up with? Hey, how was your date with Phil Totola? He took it out. <laughs> well, maybe uh, he needed some air. You know, sometimes they need air. They can't breathe in there. It's inhuman. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to be reading... The Paradox of Social Democracy by Robert Brenner. If you'd like to support the show, give us a like on Facebook or leave us a good review on iTunes. If you need to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or just send us a message on Facebook. So until next time, keep your boots and your butthole clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>